0: Turn again to Joel and chapter 2, the passage that uh, we've been looking at for some time. That's on page 1053 in the Church Bible. And uh, again, briefly, Just remember the context that uh, God has sent a plague of locusts on Judah, and he's made plain to them through the prophet Joel that he is sending this affliction on them for a particular reason, that it is a chastisement on account of their sin. He then calls the people uh, through the prophet, he calls them to repentance And in verse 18, we have the assurance that God will respond to that repentance, because in verse 18, then, in other words, when the people respond, the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face towards the eastern sea and his back towards the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up and the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully. And he will cause the rain to come down for you. The former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And the threshing floors shall be full of wheat. And the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The crawling locust, the consuming locust and the chewing locust. My Great Army, which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. And again, a turning more fully tonight to the words of verse 25, where God says that he will restore. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust. My great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. So verse 25, I will restore Now, before I begin, I apologize that the morning service was a little bit disjointed. I don't use a lot of paper, but I do use some, and I need what I have. Uh, I had left some of it at home, and uh, that's why some of it might have been uh, a little bit disjointed here and there, and there were one or two things that I I meant to bring in which I didn't, Um, but with God's help, I will uh, bring them in tonight. Now we're looking at uh, God's response to our repentance. And uh, always, when we're looking at these things in the Bible, we are to remember the relevance of these things to ourselves. I hope we've seen that plainly with this prophecy of Joel, which might have seemed a bit remote when we began it, but we've seen very clearly how applicable the book is to ourselves in our own situation. God has unleashed a natural plague. He's made plain through the prophet that it is from himself, not just as an ordinary providence, but as a special providence which he has sent to bring the church and the nation low. And once he brings them low, and brings them into poverty, he calls them to repentance, to recognize their own sin and their need of God, And he calls upon them to turn to himself with all their hearts and to tear their hearts, not their clothing, and to return to the Lord. And part of the inducement to return involves the fact that God is who he is. Full of grace, full of mercy, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. And as I said in the morning, the rest of the book is taken up with this emphasis on the goodness of God and his willingness to forgive. And not just to forgive, but somehow, mysteriously, to restore what we lost. And uh, these words have been very precious to the people of God because they don't just relate simply here to uh, God making up for a harvest or harvests that have been lost, but they express a principle that God, as it were, is in the spiritual business always of restoring to us the years that the locusts have eaten. So God responds to our repentance, first of all, by delivering us from the chastisement. He takes away the evil. He takes away the affliction which was designed to teach us. And we saw that in the morning because the locusts, God's army, his chastising army, were driven towards the Western Sea, piled up, dead, creating a stench because in the last analysis, God smites those who smite God's people. Even the locusts a reminder to us that his people are precious in his sight. So the first step in God responding, is that he delivers us. The second, which is the key to the text and the whole point of these last passages, is that God restores us to The restoration that God brings us in life. Now again, the key part of that restoration is that he actually returns to his people Um, when we move away from God, he moves away from us. That's part of the chastisement. He hides his countenance. We don't enjoy his favor. We don't enjoy his special blessing. But when we return to the Lord, he turns his face towards us again. And in a spiritual sense, his face is like the sun. The light of his countenance gives us light And it gives us warmth. It's what enables us to live. And once the presence of God comes back like that, powerfully into our lives, he starts to work within us in a way that enables us to restore the time that we have wasted. Or as he puts it here, the years that the locusts consumed. Now, this idea of restoration is really quite a remarkable one, and it's one of the things uh, that I missed out, which I should have done in the morning, and that's to essentially explain what restoration is. And uh, when we think about restoration as it appears in the Bible, the fact that he uses it in this way becomes quite remarkable. The word or the Hebrew word behind restoration means just to make up for something or to balance something out and I think perhaps the best English word in a way to convey what it means is the word compensate which comes from a Latin compound which means to weigh something so that it balances out so if you compensate somebody Normally what it means is that somebody has suffered something at at your expense and you owe them something. So you put something into the balance to weigh it out and to equalize, you compensate. That is the word that's used here. And it's translated sometimes as reward or here as restore. Now, I'll tell you, if you haven't noticed the difficulty with this word, I'll I'll tell you what the difficulty is. The difficulty is that when God restores in that kind of way, thinking of compensating or balancing, it makes it sound as though God is somehow in debt to us. Or in this particular case, that he's in debt to the people of Judah, as though he has wounded them in a way in which he should not. I'm not saying that's true. Of course it isn't. But that's the way it seems. And that this is compensating them for their loss. Look, you've lost, let's say, three or four harvests. Every piece of vegetation from the tree to the plant, including the corn and the wheat, stripped bare by the locusts. Now, I am compensating you for this. As though it were God's fault, as though God was their debtor. Now, of course, as we've been taught from our youth, and as we've known all our lives long, God is no man's debtor. God has never owed anyone anything. But according to this text, God makes up or he compensates. Now, you'll find this word used in contexts where perhaps we can understand it a little better, or even if we don't find the exact word, we find the idea. One of the best examples is Job himself, who, of course, lost everything. And there's a sense in which you could very much trace that back to God. God had given Satan permission to assault Job. Now, he looked at the book in some detail some time ago and it would be too much of a digression to go too much into it but the fact of the matter is that Job the godliest man on the earth was allowed to be stripped of everything by God. He was allowed by God although the agent that did the stripping was Satan himself. Uh, It is a mystery why God sometimes permits things like that but he permitted it And Satan assaulted Job, lost his family, lost his resources, lost everything, his health. The only thing that was kept, and it seemed to hang on a thread, was his faith. But afterwards, when that trial was finished, we read that the Lord, now this is the last chapter in Job, you can read it later yourselves, and the Lord restored Job's losses, When he prayed for his friends. These are the friends who gave him bad advice. And instead of comforting him. They distressed him. But still God told Job you pray for them. Even though they've hurt you. You pray for them. And I won't heal you until you've prayed for them. And the Lord gave Job. Twice as much. As he had before. Everything was doubled. Twice the amount of oxen. Twice the amount of donkeys. Twice the amount of sheep and so on. Now, it's not actually quite the same Hebrew word here for restore, but you'll notice that the Lord gives double. He restored his losses, as the English said, as though God is making up and compensating. Again, as though God were somehow in debt, as though God owed him it. Of course, he didn't. But at least we can understand in in that situation how there's a kind of compensation. Let's just leave it without going too much into it. Let's take a second example. God rewarding the good works of his people. Now friends, your good works and my good works are esteemed as good because Christ is in them and because we do them to the glory of God. In and of themselves, uh, they are still full of sin. There's some sinfulness in the motive. There'll be some coming short even when we do it. We know that our good works don't earn the approval of God, yet God is still pleased with them and he sees fit to reward them. I think when I mentioned this some time ago, I made a very simple illustration. Let's say I sent a member of my family as a child, let's say, or you send your child to the shop to get something, and they come back. Let's say you give them a pound. <clears throat> now, you're not obligated to give a pound for the simple reason that they're obligated to do what you tell them to do. But the fact of the matter is that you choose to give a pound So, strictly speaking, it's not earned, but it is given. It's given freely out of the kindness of your heart. Now, God's reward is like that. It is something that he sees fit to give when we do something for him. Now, there's an example of that in the book of Ruth. When Ruth looked after Naomi, her mother-in-law, Uh, She did that in in Moab. When her mother-in-law came back, Naomi, and Ruth with her, Naomi's relative, Boaz, and everyone with Boaz, knew the kindness that Ruth was showing her mother-in-law. And uh, Boaz expresses it like this. He says, it has been fully reported to me All that you, you Ruth, have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. Now, let me just say in the passing here that showing kindness to family members is a thing that God takes note of. It may earn nothing, but He takes note of it. It's been fully reported to me all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before, the Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Now see that word there that Boaz says to Ruth, the Lord repay your work. That's exactly the same word, for restoring the gears that the locust has eaten. The Lord repay your work. It's as though Boaz has put something. Sorry. It's as though Ruth has put something in the scales. And God needs to put something in the scales. To compensate. And again. In a certain way we can understand that. Because God is just gracious like that. There is not a good work done that God doesn't reward. Not a good work. Even a cup of cold water given in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will not lose its reward. God notes it and God rewards it. But when it comes to this restoration, it's very, very difficult. This time in Joel here, when God says, I'll restore to you or I'll recompense to you the years that the locust has eaten, these were not years that they suffered for God's sake. These weren't sufferings that they went through out of obedience to God. These were sufferings that they went through because of their own sin. The reason they lost the harvest was because of their own sin. That's that's why they lost the corn and the wine and the grain offering and the meal offering. They lost it all because of their own sin. And yet God says, I'm going to compensate you for that. I'm going to compensate you for your losses. Now, now do you see how, how suddenly grace is magnified? We can see the grace in connection with Job. We can understand it. We can see the grace that meets Ruth's work and we can understand it, but here it goes beyond our understanding. What, a, what kind of God is it who sees his own people sinning waywardly and then suffering because of their own sin and turns round and says, no, I'm going to compensate you for this. I'm going to give you back what you lost over and above what I am going to give you now. Now, these things are again, just like the morning, reminders to us of how gracious our gracious God is. He is that. It is sometimes the grace of God that's difficult to understand, not His justice. When we think about His justice, we understand it. When we think about His grace, it's beyond us. It's beyond us. Um, We saw in the morning how his, His treatment of the locusts Reflects how precious his people were to him. Well, so does this. He will recompense them for the loss incurred by their own sin, their own disobedience against himself. Uh, How unwilling God is to smite his children. We saw that this morning and tonight. How willing God is to show forgiveness. How willing to show forgiveness and to make a complete Restoration, a compensation to sinners, a compensation to sinners. That's what we've got here. Now, if that's what restoration is, the restoration involved, first of all, God coming back in his presence into the midst of his people. Now, I hope we understood that in the morning. He comes back, lifting upon them the light of his countenance. Now, that produces a fourfold restoration in the lives of his people. He returns as a bright shining sun and that has a fourfold restorative effect upon his people. The first thing that is restored in his people's lives is their joy. Now, in verse 19... Well, in verse 18, the Lord will be zealous for his land. He will pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. Now, that's only satisfaction. But there's more than satisfaction, because in verse 23, he is telling us to be glad then, you children of Zion and rejoice in the Lord your God. Why? Because he has given you in his kindness the former rain faithfully, and he will now cause the rain to come down for you, both the former rain, which was necessary for when you were sowing the seed later in the year, in our calendar year, and the latter rain, which is around March and April for the full flowering of the crop. He'll give you the former and the latter rain, Rain so that the threshing floors shall be full of wheat, the vats overflowing with new wine and oil. Therefore, he says, be glad and rejoice. Now, one thing we noticed when the locusts came and devoured anything was that suddenly the joy disappeared from the people. Now, that's what we saw first time around. That's what made this so, or one of the things that made this whole situation so relevant for our situation now. This virus has come in, swept the Western world in particular, and sucked the joy out of many people's lives, hitting the places of amusement and entertainment more than anything else, but also taking joy from the house of God. And these two things were emphasized in chapter one of the book. We're told in chapter one that the joy has withered away from the sons of men. Now, that's just the people collectively in the nation, indiscriminately, not just the fig trees withering away and the pomegranate trees withering, but the joy has withered away from the sons of men, chapter 1 and verse 12. But then just a little later on, you'll remember in verse 16, we are told that the food is cut off, but joy and gladness is cut off from the house of our God. So there's a general sense of a lack of joy. You see it in people's faces. They're just not the same. Nobody's the same. Nobody's the same in the church. Nobody's the same outside of the church. And uh, particularly the worship of the church was affected, remember? The meal offering and the wine offering couldn't be given anymore. I'll come back to that in a second. But whatever the lack of joy in the nation. It's the lack of joy in the church. That is the major concern. And that's where the joy comes back. We're told in our own chapter here. Chapter 2 and verse 23. Be glad then you children of Zion. So it's not just the nation generally. This specific term is meant to. Bring before us those who love Zion. Those who love Zion's God. Those who love Zion's house. Those who love the word that comes from Zion. The priesthood belonging from Zion. It is the church of God. You be glad. And you, people of God, rejoice in the Lord your God. Because he has given the former rain. And in verse 24, look what comes back. The new wine and the oil Now, the the joy that God's people lost wasn't because they lost the corn and the oil itself. Yes, I mean, we can be as affected by a famine as anybody else. We can be affected by poverty like anybody else. But you know what really affects the people of God is when God turns away the light of his countenance and when it becomes obvious that his chastising hand is upon the church herself, upon her ordinances, upon her worship, so that she can't praise and have communion, as well as his chastising hand being clearly upon the nation. That's what gives grief, not the lack of these products themselves, like wine and oil. And the moment God returns... And starts to lift the light of his countenance, their joy comes back. Again, not just because the corn's back, not because the oil is back, not because the shops are filled, but because God is back. And he makes evident that his return in blessing is tied to his return in the fruits of the land. And the reason this gladdens them so much is because, as the psalmist says in Psalm 42, God is the help of my countenance. Or even sometimes, as it's translated, God is the health of my countenance. He's the help of my countenance. Um, How is God the health of your countenance? Or to use the other word, how is God the help of your countenance? Well, it's because your face as a Christian responds to God's face. Uh, You know, know, sometimes what it's like when um, a person sees a person that they haven't seen perhaps for a long time, but they love very much. And sometimes I've seen this happen personally. I'm not not saying I'm the person, but I'm saying I've I've seen people uh, on their deathbeds and they see people that they didn't expect to see and their faces change. Their faces look one moment as though they're dying and suddenly their face looks alive just because they've seen someone else's face. Now, when the psalmist says that you, O God, are the help of my countenance or the health of my countenance, what he's saying there is that my life rises and falls just as you shine upon it. It's as simple as that. When you're near and hear I'm where I should be, and I'm who I should be. But when I can't see you, and when you've turned your face away from me, I'm ill. And that illness may be written on my face. Again, when the sun shines, the earth knows it. It springs up. And when God shines, our hearts know it. And we spring up, and we live. And um, Don't underestimate the power of joy in your heart. I mean, when joy disappears, you'll notice that so much else in your Christian life disappears with it. I'm sure you've noticed that if you've been a measure of time on the Christian journey. Your joy goes, a lot goes with it. What happens to your witness, for example? You've noticed yourself that your witness shrivels up because you've lost your joy. I mean, it's just not an attractive thing to be joyless. That stands to reason. Nobody's really attracted to joylessness. But to see joy in a Christian, joy in the midst of trouble, trial and tribulation, well, that's another matter altogether. Uh, and and the, is it the psalmist who says it, I'm sure it's the psalmist who says it, that the joy of the Lord is our strength The joy of the Lord is your strength. Is it not? Is there anything that strengthens you? Like a sense of joy in God? Knowing that you are loved by him. And that you love him. Walking in the light of his countenance. You're strong. You can defeat your enemies. You can testify on God's side. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Do you need that restored? Well, repentance is the key to that too. You're bound to lose your joy when your life is somehow wallowing in sin. Bound to lose it. And you're bound to get it back when you repent. There's no better comment on all that than the psalm that that we read earlier. In Psalm 4, the closing words of that psalm, I've referred to them a few times, I think, in other contexts, but they're so relevant here. In Psalm 4 and verse 6, David says this. Now, David is speaking this, I'm very sure, in a context of persecution himself. And people are rejecting his kingship, and they're looking either for the kingship of Saul, or I think here the kingship of Absalom. Now, Saul and Absalom both based their credentials as kings on the fact that they would strengthen the economy Uh, Saul of course famously said to the people when they were in danger as he saw it when they were in danger of following David he said will the son of Jesse notice how disparagingly he refers to him. will the son of Jesse give you vineyards and corn would he give you oil and will, will he give you wine these were the things you see the economy Absalom was the same Absalom would rebuild the country in a different way from David. And uh, David is in distress. And uh, he tells himself to meditate on his heart. And in verse 6, he says, There are many who say, Who will show us good? What can you do for us, Absalom? What can you do for us, Saul? What can you do for my bank balance? How well off will I be under your government? Is that not the question that so many people ask? I think sometimes that's the only question people ask of governments. Was it uh, Clinton who famously said, is the economy stupid? Is it just the economy? Is that all that that ever matters, the economy? That's what mattered here. There are many who say, who will show us good? What does David say? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Now, isn't that beautiful? This is the kind of king that ought to be over the kingdom. And he's the kind of king that God made sure would stay in the kingdom. Lift up on us the light of your countenance, because that's what I need, he's saying, and that's what the country needs. Lord, if it's your will that Absalom should come to the throne instead of me, I must bow before your sovereignty. But, O oh Lord, why should that be? Because I know, as Absalom doesn't, that the health of every single person in this nation depends on knowing your countenance, knowing you as their God, knowing you as their Savior, having you in their lives, enriching them with the good things of the Spirit. You, David goes on to say to God, you have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. He says, I've seen grain and wine. I've seen good economies. And I know what people are like when the harvest has been successful and they're prosperous and they're able to train, sorry, to trade. But there's more gladness in my heart through your countenance than they have when their grain and wine increase so he says tonight I will both lie down in peace and he says I'm going to sleep even though I've got every reason humanly speaking not to sleep in fear of my life well he says I'm going to lie down in peace and sleep for you alone O Lord make me to dwell in safety now I don't know if any of you are still trying to get your joys in life out of corn or wine or out of money and produce and trade and goods and houses and property and cars or yachts or whatever it may be. There is more joy in the heart of the poorest person here who knows the light of God's countenance than there is in yours. And what's more, it'll stay there and yours won't yours won't. Your laughter is like the crackling of thorns. It'll just disappear. It'll burn out. But when God comes back powerfully into the Christian's life he brings a restoration of joy. The second restoration that he brings is a restoration of praise. In verse 26 you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. What is that dealing wondrously? Well, I think it's the whole package. The locusts, everything, as well as the new grain and the oil. When God brings us back to where we should be, we thank him for what took us back to where we should be, even if it was difficult enough at the time. We'll thank him for the rod. We'll thank him for affliction. But the point here is that you will praise the name of the Lord your God. And there's nowhere that we like to praise him in comparison with praising him in his house. In the gatherings of God's people, I referred a moment ago to the fact that I mentioned a few weeks in succession that the worship of God was affected by the lack of produce. They could still offer an animal in sacrifice, but they couldn't offer the grain offering or the meal offering, as it's called. It's called the meat offering in the King James Version, but that's a little bit misleading because the word meat very often in the King James Version simply means food. For example, if we would say we are going out for a meal in the 17th century, they they would say we're going out for a meat. We're going out for meat. So when the Bible speaks of a meat offering, it's got no meat in it actually at all. It's got cereal in it, grains. That's why it's referred to as a meal offering in the Bible. So they couldn't give the grain or the meal offering, and neither could they give the drink offering. Now, you'll remember that when repentance was being urged on the people, um, the prophet said to them, who knows if God will turn instead of being angry that he will turn in mercy and relent. And when he takes away his chastisement, maybe he will leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord. In other words, the The prophet knows that when people are repenting, what matters most to them is worship. Not their own feeding, but their own worship of God. Let there be enough for that. Even if for nothing else, let there be enough for that. Has the worship of God become that important to you at all? Can you say that the things of God matter to you more than the things of the world? That's the big question, really, is it not? But what's particularly interesting here is that the meal offering and the drink offering are not sin offerings, but they are what the Bible calls thank offerings. They're offerings that were bloodless, but they expressed gratitude to God for his kindness and goodness. And along with expressing, they were always actually, sorry, can I back up? These offerings were always to be offered with a blood offering. But on their own, they represented gratitude to God for his goodness and for his kindness. Thank offerings. And as well as that, there's the latent idea of giving yourself wholly to God too because of his goodness and his gratitude and his kindness towards you. Thank offerings. Offerings of gratitude. Now, um, we miss praise in this house. I hope you do. I hope you are in a point in your own journey where it matters to you whether you sing in the house of God or not. I hope shortly that we will be able to. But one thing sure, I hope you value it. Maybe the experience of losing it has taught you to value it. Maybe the experiencing of losing communion has taught you and taught me, not leaving myself out of any of it, taught me to value communion. And when the praise of the Lord comes again, well, let's use that praise. Let's use it. Um, sometimes. Um, We need to recognize what we have through the loss of it. The Psalms themselves are disappearing. Disappearing. The number of churches that hold on to them is very few. But yet, wouldn't it be good if through all this affliction, the people of God rediscovered them? Their life and their depth and their power, their unction. Their grandeur, and their majesty. I'm sure I must have mentioned to you before the Reverend Henry Cook, who was a, a powerful minister in Northern Ireland in the 19th century. He learned the Psalms as a child himself, like many of you did, like I did too. But he moved on to sing other songs. And of course, in, in the church that he was in, gradually the Psalms more or less disappeared. Now, as I often say, there are Uh, good hymns which function as good poems but their place is not in the worship of God but Henry Cook was taken seriously ill and he said a strange thing happened to me he said when I was seriously ill because the Psalms that I learned he said as a child began to come back to me and I, I picked up the word of God and started reading the Psalms and he says from that day onwards the Psalms were mine again and I was forever in the Psalms And he says, I could sing nothing else. What taught him that? Affliction. Affliction taught him to value what mattered. Affliction brought the important things back. Now, before affliction, the wine's important. Pay is important. Standard of living's important. After the affliction, the worship of God matters. I doubt if God was being praised properly before the locusts came. Had God been praised properly in the sanctuary, the locusts would not have come at all. But when the locusts had done their work, the people praised God as they should. It'll be an acid test for ourselves, what our attitude is to the things of God when all this is over, what our attitude is to the prayer meeting, what our attitude is to the services morning and evening, what our attitude is to the communion, what our attitude is to the people of God, the house of God, the word of God, the things of God. But God, when he comes back into your heart, restores joy and he restores praise. And I suppose if you're joyful, I can tell whether your joy is spiritual or not by whether it affects your praise. If our happiness is a real happiness, it will express itself. It's got to express itself in praise to God. If it doesn't, then it's not spiritual at all. Spiritual joy and spiritual praise are intimately related. One expresses the other. The third restoration that God's people have, and I found this difficult to title, to be honest. I'm not very happy with the title I've got for it, but in any case, it'll do. It's a restoration of their dignity. The restoration of their dignity. Because three times we're told in this short passage that God is taking away their reproach. Verse 19. At the end of verse 19, I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Verse 26. At the very end of verse 26, my people shall never be put to shame. And at the end of verse 27... Again, my people shall never be put to shame. What what is the shame? Was it a shame to be experiencing the plague of the locusts? Well, yes, it was. It was a shame because something came upon the people of God that led the world looking on to say, well, you know, God's not really with them after all. They're God's. Not real. That God is not real. Uh, when Jacob sinned, when his family sinned, they became afraid of the surrounding nations. When they put the sin right through repentance at Bethel, we're told that the fear of God came upon the surrounding nations. That's That's one of my own favorite examples of this. When the people of God are degraded by their own sin, it's a shame and a reproach and the world knows it. But when they are strengthened through repentance and through the light of God's countenance, the world knows that too. And when our lives are destroyed by the locusts, when entertainment takes the place of worship in the church, or when recreation becomes more important to the Christian than consecration, or when worldliness becomes more evident in them than holiness of life, that makes the nation say, Where is their God? That makes people around us look at them and say, Well, where is God in their lives? They may say this, that, or the next thing, but where is God? Where is the power of God at work in their lives? Psalm 80 is like this. It's a psalm that we often sing. Um, In verse 6, the psalmist says this, and this is because of the low state of the church at the time and the the worldliness of the church and so on. You have made us a strife to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Now, that's so true in in the country. I mean, People just laugh at the church. And sometimes it's no surprise. You'll notice the prayer that follows this. Restore us, O God of hosts. Notice that prayer. Restore us. Cause your face to shine. And we shall be saved. And he begins to reason with God and says, You took a vine out of Egypt. That's us when you redeemed us as a people. You even cast out other nations and you planted us there. You made room for us. We took a deep root and we filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, the mighty cedars with its boughs. I mean, this vine was staggering because God's blessing was upon it. She sent out her boughs to the sea, to the Mediterranean in the west, and her branches to the river, which always refers to the Euphrates in the east. And then the psalmist says, Why have you broken down our hedges? Why have you made this vine church nothing? So that all who pass by this way pluck her fruit. The boar of the word of the woods uproots it, and the wild beasts of the field devours it. Do you ever feel like that about the church? Do you ever feel like that about the way the psalm do you ever feel the way the psalmist feels? Notice what he prays Return, Lord of hosts. Look down from heaven and visit this vine. Revisit it. This vineyard which your right hand has planted. And the branch that you made strong for yourself. Verse 18. When you visit us through the Messiah, we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Restore us. Recompense us. Come, Lord, and restore us. Cause your face to shine, and so we shall be saved. Now, in Joel, when uh, God says, my people will never be put to shame, that means either that they'll never be put to perpetual shame, in other words, God, God will end their shame, Or it may mean simply that as long as they remain with my presence in their midst, they will never be put to shame. That's true. When uh, we turn from God, God chastises us, and that's a shame. I don't know, sometimes even the censure of the church may come upon us. We may be suspended or something from the Lord's Supper or something like that. We feel the shame of that. Rightly so. We're meant to. We're meant to. We, we rightly feel sorry for other people who are in that situation, and we love them and pray for them. But when it comes to ourselves, we feel shame, rightly so. But when the chastisement of God falls upon the church collectively, we feel a sense of shame. We're ashamed before the world. And when people know it, especially we feel the shame. But you know, chastisement is not our shame. Sin was our shame. And it's it's better to be in open chastisement than to be living in secret sin. I mean, which would you prefer? Would you prefer to be living in sin that nobody knows, or would you prefer to be openly under God's chastisement for a sin that is now being dealt with by God? If you're a Christian in your place, you will choose the latter. You'll not choose the former because it is healthier to be chastised for a sin that God has brought out in the open than to be indulging a secret sin that nobody knows. I suppose it's a question for us, which do we prefer? But the fact is that a church that's restored with God's presence in our midst is a respected church. She might be a persecuted church, but she'll be a respected church, and even the world that persecutes you will respect you if you've got God's countenance in your life, because it'll make a difference, and they'll see it, even if they're hitting you at the time. It'll make the church a feared church too, even if they persecute you. They will fear you too. Restoration of joy, praise, and dignity. Last of all, and I'm obviously going to do this for the rest of my life, mismanaging my time because I've done it hitherto, but it's still a source of frustration. Last of all, there's a restoration of fruitfulness. Now, I don't mean that by that just joy and... I don't mean by that that joy and praise are not fruit. These things are fruits too. But there are more fruits than that in the Christian life. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. And you know, um, when we begin to slide back, the locusts of sin can ravage us before the locusts of chastisement do. The locusts of sin can ravage us. And um, The locusts of chastisement have to be released into our life because the locusts of sin have made so much damage. The writer of the Song of Solomon says, to beware the little foxes that spoil the vines. And these little foxes, these little sins, they do their damage and they grow and they become bigger. They damage us and we lose fruit. Now, sometimes we can lose years to to, um, backsliding. When I started out as a Christian and for a considerable time afterwards, I thought that backsliding was something that happened maybe for a month or two at most. I've since discovered that it can take years in some people's lives. Years. And sometimes um, when you get the faintest glimmer that God's coming back and that God's willing to receive you, what seems to crush you straight away, and it's the devil that crushes you with this, the sense that you can never really be restored you're always going to be a shadow of what you were or a shadow of what you could have been. But you've got to watch that kind of thinking. I said in the morning that there are some things you never get back. That's true. But it's amazing what you do get back. Let's take your unconverted years. They're wasted years spiritually. The locusts of sin do their damage. Maybe you had a lot of promise about you as a child and a lot of enthusiasm for Bible stories and things like that, but it vanished as you grew up and you've lived 20, 30, 40 years and the locusts have consumed that spiritual promise, taken it all away. And you say, well, you may even have reached the point where the best part of your life is over or most of your life is over. And what can God do with that? Well, you'll be surprised what God can do with that. For a start, God can use the experience that you've had in the world, even if it's been godless. He can use it and bless it in his own service, in ways that you don't imagine. Even helping someone else who's going down the road that you went down, you can say something. The the person who will discover how God can use them is the person who's going through that. Say, yes, Lord, you have done for me through wasted years you have used them to accomplish something in your life and you say "Ah, oh, yes but I I still doesn't matter what I get back I can never get back the time that I gave up well in a way that's true but let me qualify that with something how do you know that you're not living extra years of life right now because you were converted now, that may be a shock to you, but you remember how Hezekiah was told that he was going to die? Hezekiah prayed to God, and God lengthened his life by 15 years. How do you know? Let's say you're converted at 60, and uh, you're 65, and uh, you are moaning your lost years. How do you know that you might not have passed away at 62 had you not turned away to the Lord? You may have extra time that you just don't know about. But far more to the point, what if it's the case that you're able to do more in less time than others are with more time? What if the depth of your praise and gratitude for having been plucked late in life means that you're in your own way far more productive and industrious than even you realize? The Lord said that when the seed falls into ground, doesn't matter how old the ground is, he said it will produce fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some a hundredfold. Now, have you ever thought of that? What makes the difference between the 30 and the 60 and the 100? Well, one thing that makes the difference is your zeal and your labor. The people who came into the vineyard at 11 o'clock well, at the 11th hour, sorry, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, there was only one hour of labor left in the day. Those who went into the vineyard, and I'm talking about the parable in Matthew 20, those who went into the vineyard at 6 o'clock in the morning put in a full 12-hour shift. But who did the most? Good question. How do you know who did the most? Is a hundredfold in four years, not better than 30-fold in 12 years. According to my maths, which are admittedly dodgy, it's more productive. Is five years of producing a hundredfold not better than ten years producing it thirtyfold? Yes. Even if my maths are wrong, you get the point. Quality matters as much to the Lord as quantity. A year of zeal and ardour and fervency of prayer prayer might be worth 10 years of just ordinary, lukewarm Christianity. So whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might as unto the Lord. And even in connection with backsliding, and I'm closing with this, you may go to Moab like Naomi did in her backsliding, but of course she took Ruth out of Moab, a good thing. And you might take out of your own backsliding when the Lord's dealt with it. It may take a humility out in you that wasn't there before. A love that wasn't there before. It may even be the case that the chastisement that comes on you in Moab cleans up something that you didn't even know was a mess in your life. Oh yes, friends, God can restore and recompense. Don't limit what the Lord can do. And I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Why don't you claim that promise even now by trusting yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and start afresh. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, grant us the grace to believe in this restorative power which you possess. And uh, help us too to note how it has worked in the lives of so many people. And uh, we pray that whatever it may involve with ourselves, you would take us to that place where we entrust ourselves to the Lord and experience the light of your countenance, which is the secret to our joy and to our praise and to our dignity and to her fruitfulness. In the Saviour's name, Amen. Our last reading is in Psalm 90 from the Scottish Psalter. And at verse 15, page 350. now listen to how appropriate this prayer is in the light of restoration and locust years moses prayer after 40 years of wilderness wandering according as the days have been wherein we grief have had and years wherein we evil have seen so do thou make us glad notice according as those days so make us glad o oh, let thy work and power appear Thy servants face before, as much to say, we've had enough of that, now give us this. And show unto their children, dear, thy glory evermore. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Now, how wonderful it would be to unpack that. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And our handiworks, That, that means just what we do. The works of our hands, establish, Lord, establish them. Each one. I will hear these verses sung to the tune Mormon. Accord. Blessing would be upon those who will preach by your grace in this pulpit over forthcoming weeks. Bless them in their labor, in their deliberation, in all their thoughts, and uh, be with those who mourn tonight. And uh, we pray that you would be near to them and grant them the oil of consolation that your Spirit brings.